For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Thursday, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating tonight? Well, first of all, I'm celebrating all of you for being so patient in waiting for us to go on tonight. I guess the shadow of Mercury retrograde is still looming over me because I was having all kinds of glitches trying to get on tonight. But I am so excited about tonight's show because I am bringing someone to the show that I, I have become such a fan of. Uh, Matt, I discovered you a few weeks ago when I saw your incredible uh, piece on the life and legacy of Leslie Jordan. And uh, that hooked me. And at the end of that, you mentioned your latest book. Uh, Hi, honey, I'm homo. What a great title. Uh, and I said, I just got to have this guy on my show. I reached out to you and thank you for saying yes. So before we even get to your book, who or what are you celebrating tonight? Gosh, well, I mean, I, I think the book is uh, first and foremost on my mind. I'm very excited to get this book into folks' hands uh, for anybody who loves television and queer history and uh, LGBT, LGBTQ uh, characters throughout uh, our, our vast uh, television past. Um, you know, I, I, I'm very happy to uh, be uh, to have this work that I can now get in front of people. It comes out in just a few days. So uh, yeah, that's I think that's that's my cause for celebrating. Well, that's an oxymoron because when are you ever not in front of the camera? You know, it's true. I do spend an awful lot of time just making stuff for the internet. But um, you know that I I just can't stop. <laughs> I can't be I can't be stopped. No, we don't want you to. Um, <laughs> I, I, we're going to get to your book in just a few moments. But I, you know, I am uh, older than you are. And I am a product of 1960s and 70s television. I grew up at a time, and I've talked about this before, when there were three networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC. Those three networks vied for the largest demographic. And so they would have uh, those character actors uh, from my generation, my parents' generation, my grandparents' generation. And they would all come together on whatever television show or variety special that was on. And I want to ask you, are, did you grow up? I know you're from Seattle. Uh, I'm from South Carolina, opposite ends of the world, actually. Uh, did you grow up in a television household? No, actually. Well, I, I, yes and no. I grew up in a house where um, television was given a lot of um, thought, I guess. Um, my parents were very cautious and uh, deliberate about the media that we as kids were exposed to. So TV was something that we typically watched as a family. It's something that we talked about. Um, it wasn't just something that was kind of turned on and left on. It was something that um, I guess was given a lot of, um, you know, was the, the, the power of television was respected to the point that uh, my parents were, were careful custodians of our uh, attention. So there was actually a lot of things that I missed out on because, um, you know, one thing there's only so many hours in the day uh but also you know we definitely um you know as a, as a family me my brother my parents there were things that we all watched together like star trek was a big part of our lives uh even when i was very young i remember watching sesame street as a you know as a family so um it was something that was very communal for us but i missed out on a lot of the stuff um like you know i was alive when golden girls was happening but i didn't watch golden girls until 
years later in reruns. Uh, same thing for a lot of the topics that I talk about now. I, I often missed uh, when it was on and then came to later and was like, wow, this is actually great. Well, you know, I grew up when Bewitched was in prime time. Uh, I uh, also uh, had the good fortune. I was very good friends with Peggy Pope. And Peggy Pope, of course, was on soap. And she, uh, those immortal uh, words came out of her mouth uh, uh, to Jody. Uh, Are you a homo? And I, <laughs> and years later, uh, getting to know her. And we talked about this. And of course, at that time, it was so far ahead of its time. And there was a lot of controversy uh, mm -hmm. around the show. Now, you just mentioned your brother. Is it just the four of you, your parents and your brother and yourself? And a dog. But yeah, it was very, you know, nuclear family. Okay. And I asked for a picture of you at five years of age. Mm -hmm. uh, I love this photograph because there's so much going on in this photo. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about this five-year-old boy. You know, we have a lot in common, me and him. Uh, I definitely, like, I have very little memory of this, but uh, I apparently wanted to be a flower for Halloween. And so uh, my mother very um, creatively accommodated that request, made a cardboard flower costume for me. I was absolutely over the moon for it. Um, I guess I had kind of like a little farmer <laughs> outfit going on as well. And uh, yeah, that was, I, I, I distinctly, like, my one memory of this time is going door to door, house to house, and people just referring to me as the flower. And uh, they're still doing that to this day. And well, that's good. Well, you know, the reason I asked for the five-year-old self, because to me, the five-year-old self is the purest self. It's before life begins to tell you, at least I used to think this, before life begins to tell you who you should be or who you shouldn't be. Um, teachers start telling you who you should be and who you shouldn't be. And you get a lot of that from your peer pressure. Um, you and I are both openly out gay men. Um, at what point in your life, because you made this your life's work and your mission, and I thank you for this, um, for really shining a light on queer culture uh, through television and other means. One of my favorite books, and maybe yours too, is The Celluloid Closet. And I do believe that your book is to television what The Celluloid Closet was to film. I really appreciate that. Uh, you know, Vito Russo's work with Celluloid Closet and his activism really is an animating force for me. It, it really is a, a, a North Star for me that, you know, the incredible work that he did uh, analyzing our history through motion pictures and also mobilizing people uh, through the 70s and into the 80s and, uh, you know, getting people to prides and to marches and looking after people's health during the, you know, for the early days of the epidemic. Um, I, he's just, he's an incredible guy. And yeah, I, it, it is one of my favorite books. Literally it is within arm's reach. I can, That's I can great. pull the, the, I have the book Mine right here. Over here so, yeah. <laughs> I love that we've, we've, we've got it close by. Um, I, and it's really, that's wonderful praise to hear that, uh, to hear those, you know, that, that you feel that it's my, my book. No, I absolutely do uh, mean that. And I want to ask you, I mean, I grew up in the South in the sixties and the seventies. I moved to New York in uh, 1979 at the age of 18. And I have said this before, I'm giving a lot of information out tonight, everyone, but I was probably the most asexual person to come out of the uh, state of South Carolina. I didn't really know a lot or uh, had tapped into my own sexuality. Um, and coming to New York in 1979, um, it was really 
10 years, you mentioned Stonewall Uprising in your book. It was literally 10 years, almost to the day of Stonewall happening. Uh, by the time I came to the realization of who I was and what I was all about, um, the AIDS crisis had hit uh, New York um, big time. And a lot of people that I knew and that I worked with passed away. Uh, you mentioned the Golden Girls uh, earlier. Uh, Golden Girls in bars in New York City uh, in the uh, 80s was the thing to do on a Saturday night. No matter what gay bar you went into, chances were that at nine o'clock, Golden Girls was going to be shown and uh, everything stopped. And it was just this incredible coming together. And of course, we didn't have social media in those days. You went out to meet other people. Um, why do you think that uh, Golden Girls, and of course you co covered a lot of this in your book, uh, resonated so deeply with the gay community? I never get tired of hearing stories about gay bars playing the Golden Girls on the monitors in the 80s. It makes me so happy. And I think that there are a lot of reasons um, that gay men really took that show up as, uh, you know, appointment television. Mm -hmm. I mean, one, it's just it was a fantastic show. And, you know, you'd have to have a hard stone not to love the Golden Girls. But also, you know, even coming into the show before it even started getting made, before it was even a real product on the air, those women in the cast had a lot of gay you know elements on their on their resume so um gay audiences would have been familiar with them already uh b arthur had gay episodes of maud uh rue mcclanahan appeared in a leonard matlevich movie and uh, in the movie some of my best friends are estelle getty of course in torch song trilogy on broadway uh and um you know and betty white uh you know recently to the golden girls had been on love sydney which is a somewhat short-lived uh sitcom with a gay character a blink and you miss him gay character um so all of this that actually went to a taping of that show wow that's remarkable uh, I, I wish it's it, love sydney is one of those um you know holy grails of lost media that i wish uh was more widely available but anyway so you know there's that element and then you know of course there were a lot of queer people behind the scenes um and uh they had the gay character in the pilot episode um but more generally I, this is a show about a family of people that came together mostly unrelated by blood but um, it's a what Armistead Maupin would call a logical family, people who it makes sense for them to be together. They look after each other, even though they aren't, you know, genetically related most of in most cases. Uh, it's a it's a family arrangement that I think makes sense to a lot of queer people. Um, so there's that. And of course, the episode the, the show wasn't shy about tackling gay characters and lesbian characters, uh, having an episode about HIV. Uh, you know, given the times when a lot of programming was still a little wary or conservative about uh, LGBTQ issues, uh, you know, here you have a show where a character's brother comes out of the closet, comes back to marry his partner. Uh, you have a, a you know, a, a lesbian on an episode who falls in love with one of the characters and is not, you know, ostracized or rebuffed to, you know, isn't met with disgust uh, as it would have been uh, in a lot of other contexts on television. So it was a show that made, I think, it clear that queer people were welcome. And, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're good to the gays, the gays will be good to you. And I, I think that's certainly what we saw with the Golden Girls legacy. Well, when did it begin for you? I mean, was it a particular character that we were uh, drawn to on TV? Or uh, because you, you've made this your life's work. Where did it begin for you? Gosh, well, so I think 
by love of television, this is going to sound a little strange, but um, my interest in television, at least, I think you could trace back to the show Fraggle Rock in the 1980s. I was a young kid. We had HBO as a, I think it must have been on like one of those free trials where the cable station, the premium cable station is free for like a weekend. And my parents very diligently taped as much Fraggle Rock as they could and just played it on a loop. And that is a show that did a lot to inform my values as a young person. Uh, Jim Henson made that show to teach young people basically how to be good human beings. And exactly. I hope I hope those those values, I, I, I do feel that those values really, um, I internalize them. Uh, and, and also, you know, there are a lot of queer people working on that show. Um, uh, there's, uh, gosh, I, I, I have a whole video about, uh, about the, you know, gay connections to the to the Muppets and, and folks who work with Jim Henson. But um, my really, I, if you want to call it scholarship, although I think of it more as storytelling, that the, my interest in telling stories about the making of TV um, probably came first in college. I went to college for film and that's where I really discovered like mass media and dove into it and really started just consuming everything I could. Um, and then a little bit later uh, on YouTube, uh, I was doing a lot of queer activism. I was making videos about what was happening with marriage equality and how people can get involved in things. And, and you've written to... an amazing book about that. Oh, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I, I wrote a book, Defining Marriage, about the history of uh, people who fought for marriage equality. And I started to see, because I've done a lot of work in the entertainment industry, and I've done a lot of work in um, activism, and I started to see how those two circles overlapped, and they're, they're really similar fields of interest uh, that media and television and entertainment, the movies we watch, the shows that we love, um, those help shape us as people. They help us understand who we are and help us imagine how we could be better. And um, in fighting for, you know, I was very involved in the fight for marriage equality. I was part of the lawsuit that, I was part of the team that brought the lawsuit to the Supreme Court. And it really opened my eyes to how much entertainment does to, um, you know, to help us become better people. Uh, and so, it was actually the Golden Girls uh, was sort of my way into really studying that stuff and, and um, finding the great stories. I made a video, this is maybe like seven or eight years ago at this point, but I made a video about um, the episode of the Golden Girls, Isn't It Romantic, where Dorothy's lesbian friend Jean, played by Lois Nettleton, comes to visit. Yes, great episode. Just fantastic. It was written by the wonderful Jeffrey Uteel, who uh, was responsible for a lot of other queer stuff on television. And just an amazing piece of television, so forward thinking, so wonderful. And so I made a video about just what a great episode that is. And, and how did something so great wind up on television? Uh, and all the wonderful things that that episode does uh, and in showing an audience how to respond when you meet somebody who is openly out and, you know, an, an out lesbian in that case. Uh, the show really models good behavior while also being incredibly funny. Some of those quotable lines from Golden Girls history come from that episode. Uh, and so that's, that's where it began. Um, people really responded well to that on YouTube. And I was like, you know, I like making this. People like watching it. I think there might be more here. And sure Are enough, there was. Are you surprised at how your channel has taken off in the way it has? I'm really gratified. I, I, like, it, it makes me so happy to know that other people love this stuff as much as I do, that they love these shows or that they're excited to discover them with me. Um, you know, to see, I've, I've just passed uh, around a quarter million um, subscribers and, uh, you know, those are those are folks who share a passion for telling amazing, not just absorbing the great pieces of movie and television history and, the, you know, the queer perspective on it, um, but also, you know, learning about the people who made that stuff and the struggles that it took to get it on the air or get it into theaters uh, at the time. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm very, I'm very happy uh, and always pleasantly, 
I don't know if I'm surprised, but I'm very delighted uh, to see that other folks are ready to join me in, in this um, exploration, this adventure of, of looking into all these incredible stories from our past. That's great. Like I said, the show that really pulled me in for you was the your show that you did on Leslie Jordan. And there were so many things that I learned about him that I didn't really know. Um, for example, I, I love, and I've been telling everyone this story, um, of his sponsor saying, when you, you know, when you go out, see how you can be of service to other people. And I think that that epitomizes the work that you're doing as well. Uh, I think you're creating a great uh, service to everyone, but there are certain things like when, you know, in the book you write about, for example, uh, the episode of the David Suskind show. And I remember uh, watching David Suskind. He had a lot of very controversial shows, but one of the episodes was about homosexuality. And at the end, he did refer to it as an illness, but saying that there's no reason for us to be mean to them. Well, Right now, are you surprised where we are in the world right now? In uh, the United States, I should say. Uh, but it's happening around the world. Uh, with how far backwards we seem to be going? You know, I wish I could say I was surprised by that. But if you look back over the history of civil rights in general, but particularly queer liberation, um, it is a repeating pattern that there will be advances and setbacks. If there's a pendulum or a tug of war, whatever you want to call it, where, you know, these um, advances that we've made, we've had we've had a really good run for the last two decades, you know, starting around 2000, particularly in media, things have been getting better and better and better, more or less, even even in the George Bush years, which were not great, but we that it was during that time that we got, um, you know, uh, sodomy laws overturned, and we made a lot of progress in the state to state on marriage. And also, you know, gay characters appearing on television, of course. Um, so we had a lot of advances over the last 20 years. And, you know, uh, you could kind of predict, um, not to be not to be too, too much of a downer about it, but often the good times are followed by some bad. And um, I think the lesson there is that uh, liberation is not a project that concludes. It's something that has to be defended. Uh, you know, we see it in the 1970s when just after Stonewall, uh, there was a surge in visibility for queer people on television and film, followed by a backlash that gave us the family viewing hour and wiped all that stuff away for a little while. Then another surge and then Reagan's election, which put a conservative slant on television for a while. And then, of course, the 80s got very dark and difficult for a lot of people. Um, then a surge again. And, you know, it, it goes back and forth. And we've had such a great 20 years uh, that it does not totally shock me that at some point the party would enter a rough patch. And I, I, I think that that hammers home how important it is to not just celebrate our victories, but to defend them. Well, getting back to Leslie Jordan for a moment, if you don't mind, um, one of the things that he said that he would be somehow somewhat titillated by seeing certain people like Truman Capote uh, on the Johnny Carson show or something. But then what really surprised me was he talked about how repulsed he was by it, that he would literally throw up after seeing uh, certain people uh, like Truman Capote on TV. Um, you know, there are certain people that jumped out at me. Like I was always, I grew up again at a time where I, you know, Paul Lynn, was not only on Bewitched, but was you know you know shortly after that was doing Hollywood Squares and the a lot of the th jokes that I watched at that time made no sense at all to me at that time, 
But now I, I remember watching one of the episodes and asking, you know, um, they asked him, uh, what do you call a female sheep? And his response was beloved. And I was sitting with my grandmother and I said, what does that mean? And I still remember that my grandmother wanting to change the channel because I was taking her in a direction that she didn't want to go in. But when you saw as a young boy and growing older, these men and these characters on TV, what was your initial reaction to them? You know, I think it varied. Um, I, I think I had an experience that sounds like it was probably similar to Leslie Jordan's in being fascinated and repulsed and by Paul Lind, in fact. I, I certainly, I went through a time where I just could not stand him and uh, or his work. I couldn't stand the work that I saw on, t on, on the screen. And, you know, I, to look back, I think um, what may have been going on there is a tendency to look down on the, in other people, the things that we are self-conscious about in ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and also perhaps to fear the uh, criticisms that might be levied against us by other people. I was very aware and very self-conscious about being detectably gay. Uh, that is not something that, um, I, I, I'm, I'm no longer self-conscious about that whatsoever, but uh, it was certainly something that made me self-conscious at, at various times in my life. Um, so yeah, it, but that having been said, uh, there were other characters who I found really um, empowering. I think characters in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, I remember in high school when I stumbled across that film on VH1, it was being broadcast in sort of a ex expurgated version uh, because there are bits in there that, that could not be broadcast. But um, I remember seeing these characters who were moving so fluidly between their work as entertainers and their lives as, as really flesh out real human beings. Um, I found that really intriguing and fascinating and also uh, very beguiling that they had a, um, there was a community, that there was a group of people, that, that logical family, um, really gave me something to um, aspire to uh, when I was young and a bit isolated. This is mostly pre-internet, uh, living in a suburb in Connecticut, so did not have a lot of access to gay community there. Um, so anyway, I, I, you know, there, there were characters that I found very inspiring, like, uh, you know, I, I think in particular Hugo Weaving's character in Priscilla uh, really um gave me a lot of comfort and was a to to an extent a sort of a model for me in, in in the sort of work that or the sort of life that I would want to have. Um Will and Grace, I don't think I knew what to make of. <laughs> there was that life of um wealthy gay men living in New York City uh seemed very seemed very alien to me um at first. Well, and then you somebody bring up a very interesting point because there are there are certain shows that to me are stereotypical. Um, when I see a lot of, uh, like my, my husband and I, we've been together 34 years. Uh, we've been legally wed uh, going 11 years. Um, and we were one of the first 100 couples, by the way, to get married in the state of New York. So I just want to put that out there. Uh, but when you see a show like Will and Grace, do you think that that show would have succeeded if it had been set in a small town uh, in the Midwest? I think there's a chance that it might have. I think a real strength of Will and Grace was the quality of the writing. And, and that's really often what it comes down to. You know, you can look at format stuff as much as you want, but I think great writing, great characters, and in particular, great direction with James Burroughs at the helm of that show. I mean, you really have a, um, I think it was hard for that show to, I think it would have been hard for that show to have been bad. Um, that having been said, it, 
it didn't succeed at first. It, it reached um, a smaller audience than it really deserved for its first two or three years. So I think it 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 really had a lot of challenge. So anyway, to answer your question, um, had it been set in a small town, I don't know. Hard to say. You know, there was certainly there was an, somewhat of an imitator called Normal Ohio that was set in a small town uh, with John Goodman. Uh, maybe a few, maybe like '99 or so. There's also there's a sitcom that featured Ellen that didn't last a season called uh, The Ellen Show. Um, so, you know, and, and those those were both set in small Ohio towns, small Midwest. You know, it was kind of an attempt to be like, can the gays get along in the in the Midwest? And the answer on those shows was no. But I think the answer on those shows was no because those shows weren't quite fully baked. Um, you know, and then there was also there was another show about uh, gay folks uh, around the same time called um, I think it was called Some of My Best Friends. Uh, it starred Jason yeah. Bateman and Alex Malfa. Um, and that was another one that, you know, it just didn't quite fully come together in terms of the writing and the cast and the direction. So I think the setting, um, I think the setting was certainly a component of Will and Grace's success, but uh, I bet that show would have worked. I bet it would have done okay uh, had it been, I don't know, in Topeka or something like that. Mm -hmm. Would have been a very different show. But, it would have been absolutely a different yeah. show. But I think a lot of things that made Will and Grace a lot of fun to watch I think that would have worked in other in other settings. I, I want to ask, um, with all the work that you do, and I think I know the answer to this, you become an activist as well. When did the activism really tap into uh, all the work that you're doing? And you, I mean, these lines with the different hats that you wear, you just blend them so beautifully together. Uh, how were you able to really step outside of your writing to do the activism that you do? You know, I could tell you the, the exact moment when I really got serious about activism. It was right after, it was 2007, when the California Supreme Court overturned the state's marriage ban and couples could get married for the first time in California, gay couples, same-sex couples could get married. There was this photograph on the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle of people celebrating in the Castro. And I remember looking at that photo on the front page of the newspaper. This is back when newspapers were a thing and you'd pick them up in a newsstand. And I remember thinking how wonderful it was and how happy everybody was at this victory. And then I remember thinking that there are going to be people who want to take this away. And I just, I could not stomach that thought. And so that is when I started making videos with the help of my partner. Um, the, the two of us started making uh, videos where we were interviewing gay couples about why marriage was so important to them. And that's what kind of got me started on trying to, you know, deliberately um, influence the world and, and make it a, a more, I don't know, a kinder and more humane place for people. I think a lot of us do activism without realizing it simply by being out and vocal and, and by living our lives, uh, you know, it's, Simple act of existing happily is, I think, an activist act as well. But uh, to really become one of those, like, capital A, uh, I'm trying to make the world a better place. That's where it got started. And um, the more I saw, the, the more potential I saw for, um, I don't know, using using media, using communications and, and the stuff that we loved, it, you know, the, the, the movies and film and uh, television, People just love this stuff. This is this is the stuff that makes us happy and we look forward to. And if there's a way that that can also make the world a better place, fantastic. There's a great play called Daniel's Husband. Mm -hmm. And I, are you familiar with the play? I, I know the name, but I, I don't know what it's about. Look it up because, I mean, the play is brilliant. And uh, it takes a turn. I want to give away the plot, but it really 
you know, really tells the importance of uh, uh, same-sex marriage and why it is so important uh, that we be allowed to have marriages uh, in the traditional sense of a marriage. Um, and the play just covers it so brilliantly. I want to ask you, going back, if there was a particular, whether it be a gay actor uh, or a television show or a moment uh, that really made the biggest impact on you personally, uh, both in a positive way and in a negative way, and why? So um, for sure, Hugo Weaving's character in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert um, gave me, I mean, there's somebody who's confident, and, you know, has challenges and difficulties in his lives, but he is confronting them and he's very confident about being what he is. Um, so I think that that's, a, that's somebody who, who meant a lot to me when I needed a role model to look up to. Uh, I think also um, RuPaul was hosted that screening of uh, that airing of Priscilla Queen of the Desert on VH1. And this must have been like 96, maybe 90, I don't know, it must have been 97 or so. Um, and I remember RuPaul just popping up at, at the break, um, saying something funny and sassy and then going to commercial and then saying a few more words when we came back. And uh, RuPaul was so unabashedly unashamed and and not shy at all and just seemed to be celebrating who they were and uh i think that was a i think that that, that really gave me a lot of um optimism and hope and confidence for you know what what life may lie ahead for for a young gay teen like me and was there a moment or a character that uh hit you um in a negative way and when i and and i don't mean that it necessarily turned you off or anything but it, it really made an impact on you in terms of the way that you see the world? Hmm. Um, you know, I don't know that it had a, a huge impact, but um, the first thing that comes to mind is in this movie, Victim, from 1960, I think it's 1963 or so, British film, um, there is a really horrible, self-loathing homosexual who's blackmailing other gay men. Is this the Dirk Bogart film? Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, I, I just saw that recently, a few months ago for the first time. Yeah, it's it's an amazing work, fantastic film. And I remember seeing it in college, and, um, you know, I, I was going to college, this would have been around like 2000 or so, and very different climate, very different time, very different culture. But uh, that was the first time I'd really thought about blackmailability as something that, gay people might have to be concerned about. You know, I was certainly not in a position where uh, I was making a, a secret of, about who I was and did not need to. I was very fortunate mm -hmm. that I didn't need to. I was going to college at Emerson College, a very gay-friendly school. I was going to school in Boston. It was the two, 2000. I was, I was doing just fine. But that really helped me reflect on how recent, uh, you know, 1963, I might feel like a, you know, a million years ago to 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 young gays today, but uh, you know it's a living lifetime for a lot of people. Just how recently um, it was a life-ending uh, revelation that people found out the truth about you. So um, yeah, that that really opened my eyes to how um, precarious uh, our safety can be. Well, the Children's Hour is oh my a, goodness, you know, is a brilliant film that deals with that, and even the original called These Three where it's just about the innuendo of gossip and mm -hmm. what gossip will do with someone. In 1990, I was doing a show in New York called Men of Manhattan. And it dealt with gay life in Manhattan, uh, you know, seven vignettes. And at that time, Out Magazine came out. Now the original 
Out Magazine, which is very different from Out Magazine now. I think Out Magazine is still out. I think it is. Uh, but uh, at that time, uh, the writers or the people behind it were outing people. And they were outing people because they felt that it was important. Uh, I understand if you're a politician and you are still in the closet uh, and you're espousing things that are anti uh, uh, gay and lesbian and uh, transgender, whatever, that's a real issue. But some actors that stayed in the closet at that time did it because their careers could have been on the line. Um, and so I always had a problem with outing for the sake of outing. Um, with all the work that you've done with the book and everything, is there any particular actor uh, whether they have portrayed gay characters on uh, stage or not, uh, that really made an impact on you, again, as far as your activism is concerned. Hmm. You know, someone who I've been learning a lot about recently um, is um, actually two people, Farley Granger and Arthur Lawrence. Um, I recently did a video hmm. about Alfred Hitchcock's Rope. Uh, By the way, I that, I, I watched Rope, and then I went and watched your video. And your video is amazing. Everybody, you're going to have to get onto this channel. Uh, so again, I'm sorry to interrupt, but loved your video. Thank you. Thanks so much. Well, so, and Farley's life, uh, in learning about him in particular, you know, you asked about him, actor. Um, so I, he lived um, for so long and had so many different, I mean, he had really, Farley had a lot of lifetimes. Um, you know, as a kid who, as a very young boy, watching his family's finances fall apart and fleeing in the really in the dead of night, um, rebuilding the family in Los Angeles, becoming a young actor, uh, making, you know, entering the army and, and discovering a passion for performing there uh, with Maurice Evans, another fantastic um, mm -hmm. actor, um, coming back and becoming a Hollywood heartthrob and um, then going to um, Broadway and, and discovering, um, you know, a, a career there. Uh, and through, he has a fantastic book. It's it's on the shelf behind me. Oh, I too. Yes. Okay, great. Yes, include me out. Uh, Farley's fantastic memoir, uh, where it's just an incredible journey through how much life for gay men in particular has shifted uh, over you know from the basically over the last century. Uh, we're coming up on on what would have been his hundredth birthday soon, and. Uh, yeah, so I, I find his life really inspiring, particularly that he was able to find such happiness and fulfillment um, towards the end of his life, you know, coming out and finally it being a safe climate for him to live a fully realized, fully open and out life. Gosh, what a what an incredible privilege to to be able to see in his lifetime to do. Yeah, that. yeah, that's just wonderful. But, but the flip side of that is Arthur Arndt's story, which was incredibly sad to me. Because I, you know, uh, yeah, I've got his uh, biography as well, but he doesn't even delve into it as much as you do in your video. Yeah, well, Arthur, I think, is a particularly complicated person um, and is somebody who went through a lot of, um, had a lot of, held a lot of different feelings about about being gay. Um, and it certainly seems like something that he came to terms with at the end of his life. I, you know, sadly, never had the opportunity to know either of these people, but um, the impression I got from listening to interviews and from reading their books uh, is that, uh, you know, and you have to bear in mind, of course, the time that they were raised in, they come from a generation where, um, you know, where being gay was assumed to be a mental illness and crime and, you know, something to be cured. Um, and so, you know, I see in, in when I read about Arthur's stuff, and particularly when I read his books, um, 
I see someone who really struggled in a particularly dark time. You know, going back to Leslie Jordan. Leslie Jordan um, has this really lovely way of, you might say, exonerating people who were less than kind to him in his past um, by recognizing, as he puts it, they were doing the best they could with the light they had to see by. And I think that's true for a lot of people who have been fortunate enough to have lived long enough to see times change um, and to have reflected on, you know, there might have been a time when Arthur was in the closet, when he was trying not to be gay, when he was trying to date women and, and try to, you know, you know, quote unquote, cure whatever, you know, people believed was an illness. Um, I, I can't fault people for, you know, do, doing the best they could by the light that was available at the time, you know. And thank you for saying this. I was watching a pundit on uh, CNN a few weeks ago, and he was talking, they were discussing the issue that recently, unfortunately, happened in Kansas with a young boy being shot by accidentally ringing the wrong doorbell. And there was an African-American pundit, I wish I knew his name off the top of my head, who, rather than condemning the older man, um, tried to get into the mindset of the older man. And of course, he was not condoning on any level what happened, but trying to figure out where this man was coming from at this point in his life, that he lives in such fear that he sleeps with a gun next to his bed. That's a whole new show that we were not going to delve into. But I believe that everybody comes to the table based on what they've been fed, what they have been indoctrinated with, and where we are. And right now, um, there is such a backlash happening. We just had an election here in the county where I live in New York, uh, two women uh, running on a platform to ban a lot of books in school. And believe it or not, these two women won. And uh, it really concerns me that so many books and movies and shows are now being banned because it, all it takes is one person to stand up and say, I'm offended by this. And then they get a movement behind them. And uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on all of this, you know, with where you are with your own activism now when it comes to the fact that so many books. I just read that, for God's sakes, in Wilton Manors, of all places, uh, one of the gayest counties in Florida, uh, I don't think that's the county, but it's part of this county, um, they are not doing any drag shows during their Pride Festival for fear of being arrested. Yeah, it's a real tragedy, and it's something, you know, again, it hammers home why it's so important to defend our victories, um, you know, not just not just to celebrate. Um, yeah, I, I also think it's very disingenuous of the these forces of censorship to say, oh, this is offensive, this is dangerous, we want to protect the kids. I, that's obviously not what's going on. It's politically expedient for them to identify a scapegoat. And perhaps they've even convinced themselves that they, that they really are trying to protect the children or whatever. But, you know... Anita Bryant didn't really care about saving the children, and these people who are trying to censor Disney movies out of schools aren't trying to protect the children either. It's very disappointing to see um, just how much momentum they have at the moment. I don't think it's something that will last forever, but I think it's something that won't go away unless um, dedicated people do what they can to push back against it. And, you know, Look, look, I'm sure that I can, you know, hopefully speak for you when I say this. I don't know you well enough that I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you're a writer. You also have your own YouTube channel. Uh, you are responsible for the content that you put out there. Um, and I'm sure 
that as uh, as a gay man, uh, th- there are characters and there are depictions that over the years you've been offended by. Uh, my guess, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, is that you would not advocate those films or anything being wiped from our slate. I, I think of them as teachable moments where we can learn from what was presented as, at a certain time. Sure. Yeah, I, I think I have a very high threshold for what I would, um, for when I would say that censorship is appropriate. I mean, I, you know, I'm trying to think. My my partner and I just tried to watch the movie Sonic Two, and it's terrible. And so I'm trying to, you know, censor something because it's because it's awful, but not not because it's offensive. Uh, you know, it offended me on an aesthetic level. Uh, but but more seriously, I, yeah, sure. There have been there have been, you know, for example, depictions. I was just talking to a friend about this a movie or a TV show that we talked about a few minutes ago, Normal Ohio. Um, there's a character play, I want to say it's played by Orson Bean on that show, who I think is not well-written um, and whose dialogue is offensive without having any insight. So, and, and I would say that to distinguish it from say, um, you know, Archie Bunker. I think Archie Bunker is a fantastically offensive character uh, for a very good reason. Um, and so, you know, I certainly, in a million years, I wouldn't say like, well, Archie says some offensive things, so get him off television. Uh, I think Archie says some offensive things and, you know, going back to what you said earlier, so let's think about why. You know, I think All in the Family is, in addition to being an incredibly entertaining and amazing piece of um, art, really, like, it, you know, every one of those episodes feels like a little piece of theater. Uh, I think it's also a, this is going to sound like a weird word, nutritious show in that it you know nutritious emotionally and intellectually it's a show that you can watch as a sitcom which most people think is junk food but i think there is a um emotional truth in what archie says and believes that gives the audience an opportunity to reflect on why is he like that why does he think that why is he either if you could see if you stand far enough away why is he so wrong Mm -hmm. or if you're a viewer who's very close to archie um you know, it might give you an opportunity to reflect on your own prejudices. Hopefully. 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 Yeah. Let's yeah. hope so. Uh, but I want to get back to your book for a moment. Uh, first of all, uh, the title is great. Uh, did this come from your head or did an editor come up with this title? How did the title come about? I can't tell you the hours that we spent trying to like you know, just wading through a pool of different um, possible titles. Um, at one point, one of the ones that we were considering was, um, this is a very oblique reference. Uh, when I was in college, one of our textbooks was called Tube of Plenty. It was a book about the history of television that referred to it as the Tube of Plenty. So, you know, kind of a, referring to television as a cornucopia. Uh, and so for a while, we were considering the title uh, Tube of Pansies. was one of the <laughs> options that we were looking at. I'm glad that we didn't go with that one. Um, TV Gade was another one that was up for consideration, you know, kind of a pun on TV Guide. Uh, so, uh, oh, and we were also thinking, not that there's anything wrong with that, kind of referencing that episode mm-hmm. of Seinfeld, that notorious episode, famous episode. And uh, so eventually, Hi Honey, I'm Homo, I don't remember which one of us, it was between me and my partner, we had these like marathon brainstorm sessions, long list of like good ideas, ranked from best to worst. Uh, at some point that came up and you know, it was for a long time, it was on the so bad it's good list that we were kind of laughing at, like, this is such a bad idea, it's funny. And then the longer we sat there, the longer we looked at it, we were like, you know, <laughs> maybe it just might work. 
And uh, I ran it by the publisher and they were like, great, we love it. Marketing thinks it's fantastic. And so, well, okay, who am I to argue with marketing? So <laughs> here we are. Uh, I'm very happy that that's, that that sailed through. It's, it's also a bit of a reference to, um, I didn't realize this until much later, until it was locked in. Uh, there's a band that, um, there's, a, there's a queer punk band uh, that started in the 90s called uh, Pansy Division. They actually, it's a lyric from one of their songs. Um, and uh, I didn't know that until like months after we chose the name. So I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm in good company with them. And then also it references somewhat. Uh, there was a sitcom in the 90s, very short-lived, that was very meta called Hi, Honey, I'm Home. It was a sitcom about sitcoms. And, uh, you know, occasionally I would think about that show sometimes when I see the title of the book. So that, that's a sort of the, the genesis of that title. It also, I think, really um, filters out <laughs> a certain, you know, if somebody picks that book up and they're like, oh, oh, I'm clutching my pearls. I can't, I, I can't believe they would title a book something like this. I think that very quickly uh, <laughs> sorts oh, readers from whether it tells you whether this book is for you or whether it's maybe not. And I'm always curious, you know, the first words that we read in your book, hmm. are they the first words you wrote? No, actually, um, often uh, I will wait until the very last moment to uh, write the beginning of something. I, I think I often will put something kind of in place, sort of a formless lump, where I'm just like a little note to myself, like, uh, you know, TK, TK, TK is like writing shorthand for um, fill this in later. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think I think an early draft of this book had something like TK, TK, uh, emotional story about a fight. <laughs> So uh, it was in my research process, actually, that I I actually remember this moment. I was talking to the wonderful Marsha Posner Williams, who was a started as, a I think, a secretary or maybe script supervisor on soap, worked her way up to associate producer, was a producer on Night Court and Golden Girls and many other things. I was interviewing her about her experiences on those shows. And she was describing this one night she was working late in the office before soap was set to debut. It's an incredibly controversial show before it even aired. All oh, this my God. Newspaper coverage and people were up in arms. People were protesting. There were bomb threats. And somebody called the production office furious and wanted to know where they should write an angry letter about the show. And so Marsha... And it had not even aired about this part. Had not aired. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So, you know, Marsha being um, as, as um, spirited as she is, you know, is like, well, I'm not going to take any more of this. And starts, you know, not combatively, but talks back to the guy and, and it's like, this thing isn't even broadcast yet. You don't know what you're even writing about as nicely as she can, but still like, you know, not letting somebody push her around. And I'm like, this is such a great story. This is, this, I got to open the book with this because uh, Marsha is such a wonderful person and makes for a great character in the book. Uh, and that fight is so emblematic of, you know, the, um, I guess the hypocrisy of the people who are, you know, aghast and mortified and offended and want to censor. Have you never seen it? Television. Which yeah, I yeah. love. <laughs> You've just been told that you're angry about this, but you're not actually. Well, you know, it's funny. I had a 20-year career performing as Carol Channing, and I performed mm -hmm. all over the world as Carol. Mm -hmm. And I have performed in the most Republican towns you can imagine. And I've had senators and I've had congressmen uh, on stage dancing and singing with me. And it was never an issue. And, uh, and you know, and all it takes, like I said before, is one or two people to make this into an issue and uh, blow it out of proportion. Um, I just recently did a show in uh, Washington, D.C. 
an area I want to talk to you about that as well, because I, we're going to talk about your uh, little tour that you're about to uh, embark upon. Um, and I've got the perfect place that I think that you should do a book signing in Washington, D.C., hmm. if you are interested. So, um, but I just performed there and they recently, you know, the night of my show, uh, the Proud Boys sent a bomb threat. It had nothing to do with my show. It had to do with the fact that the next day there was going to be a drag time story hour. And uh, so it's it's all crazy that, and people are up in arms about things that they don't know anything about. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's exhausting. And I can't even imagine the difficulties that, um, it was like the Gay Activist Alliance and the people who fought against Nita Bryant. I mean, that, that was a time when they didn't have the you know momentum the recent history of all of the victories that we had over the last 20 years legislatively culturally etc um gosh the 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 ignorance that folks had to fight against you know going even further back to you know Harry Hay and Frank Kameny and the folks who were activists in the 40s and 50s and Dell and Phil Lyon mm-hmm. uh, like oh my goodness the, the how brave they they had to be uh, you know um this is it's one reason why i think something that and I don't know where to begin with this project, but something that I think every city should have, and something that Chicago has um, to an extent, uh, a gay history walk where there are plaques on the ground, there are um, sculptures and, and busts, and you know, there's there's physical interpretive elements throughout the history that tell the story of local gay liberation, mm-hmm. um, because a lot of that stuff just disappears into the you know into the into the noise of history that, that people are like, well, it's that was that was. 20 years ago, what what could that possibly have to do with me now? Uh, So anyway, I think that is a great way to protect our wins and not put us in the position constantly of having to play um, defense, you know, as as you were, you know, dealing with a bomb threat because people were so ignorant about- Well, I um, didn't know anything about it until after the fact. Yeah. Tell me that it had happened that night. Good grief. I started with where your book began with the first uh, words. When did you know that your book was ready for us, the reader? Uh, was it your decision? Was it an editor's decision? Was it the publisher's decision? Who had well, the I, word on that? I, I'll be perfectly honest. I like. I always feel like there's more to say. You know, I could write. I could write fifty more books <laughs> like this, uh, and and hopefully I will. Uh, I'm already outlining what my next one's going to be. But um, you know, I was actually very fortunate. I actually uh, had somebody helping me with this. Um, a just before I was actually in the process of writing. Um, I got a formal. ADHD diagnosis. I don't talk about this much, but I got an ADHD diagnosis. Started working with a coach, uh, an ADHD coach, um, basically to help me with my workflow and organizing myself. Um, and she really helped me uh, to prioritize the stories that I wanted to tell, how I wanted to organize this book, and the research that I wanted to do. Wow, that's um, great. And it gave me a real, you know, like I don't know what to call it, but you know, when a you, linear when, way of looking at things. Yeah, I backed out, looked at what exactly I wanted to say, and. Um, you know, what, as it started to take shape, I'm like, well, I'm writing about friends now. I'm going to write Golden Girls and Will and Grace and Modern Family and Bewitched. And all came together and, you know, stepped back after I, you know, I made a skeleton, fleshed out the skeleton, put put the, I guess, put the muscles on the skeleton, laid the skin on top to get really gruesome. Uh, stepped back and I was like, wow, there's a real, there's a real story here. You know, if you look, start from Bewitched to go up to Modern Family through all that time, through all those people and all that work, all those shows, all those great jokes on the, on the sitcoms. Um, there's an incredible story about gay liberation here, and um, and, and and there it is. You, you you pick the right shows, you pick the right episodes, you pick the right jokes. Uh, you're having a you're having a great time, uh, enjoying all this fantastic comedy, 
uh, and also absorbing an incredible journey that we as a community has have been on for the last 60 years. Now, is Seattle still your home base? It is, yeah, still based in Seattle. So I, I've got on the screen, you're going to be doing a book signing uh, at Elliott Bay Books. Mm-hmm. Um, for those of us who are not going to be there, uh, I know that you're doing a talk back uh, and you're going to be ta- telling some of your favorite gay jokes from sitcoms. Yeah. Uh, can you share one or two with us right now? Oh my goodness, yes. And so I'll, I'll be at a, quite a few places. I'm going to be doing The Strand in New York. And you're going to be doing The Strand. I've got, uh, I've mm-hmm. got all of this I'm pulling up. Okay. So. Fantastic. I'm ahead of you. So, uh, uh, New York, Chicago, Portland, Seattle, Los Angeles, and hopefully, fingers crossed, a few more uh, coming up. Uh, GaySitcons.com has all the details. But so you asked about, oh my goodness, my favorite gay joke. Uh, it's so hard to choose. It's so hard to choose. Um, mm, I, you know, I, I, I have to go to the Golden Girls. And I have to go to this wonderful moment that's just so silly. With And, and I love this moment because knowing what an incredible ally Estelle Getty was, uh, but Estelle Getty, playing Sophia, of course, on the Golden Girls, uh, Estelle, uh, Sophia and Dorothy are in the living room of the house, and Dorothy's college friend Jean is coming to visit. And Dorothy's a bit fretful. She says something along the lines of, I don't know if she'll, she's a very special person. I don't know if she'll get along with the other girls. And um, uh, Sophia, knowing that Jean is a lesbian, um, you know, try, it, basically she she lays it out so well. She says, Jean happens to like guys instead of girls. Frankly, you know, I'd rather live with a lesbian than with a cat. Unless a lesbian sheds. That I don't know. (laughs) It's such a great Sophia moment. Because she's saying, it's no big deal. I like a lesbian just, you know, it's just like like anybody else. Uh, But it's also slightly like her train is going a little bit off the rails. And it's just like a really lovely moment. And also, you know, knowing behind the scenes that Estelle was such a well one of my favorite lines comes from that episode too mm-hmm. uh when uh, uh she's referred to as a lesbian and she's well isn't danny thomas you know <laughs> oh my stars yes yes not lebanese blanche <laughs> and that joke actually re- made a research i don't know recurred about a decade later when ellen degeneres was about to come out of the closet but couldn't confirm anything because abc hadn't approved it yet so she's going on these talk shows people are asking about the rumors she can't talk about it. and so ellen's kind of deflection of that was all right well we see what happens as the character learns that she's lebanese and <laughs> and she even she tells that joke to rosie o'donnell and rosie with this big grin on her face is like oh you know what maybe i'm lebanese and i was like oh yeah i've, I've, I've noticed that about you I, I sometimes i feel like you're lebanese it's so silly that they couldn't talk about it at the time. But, you know, Do you remember, I mean, again, I'm uh, older than you, but the night that that episode, wow. Ellen, uh, aired, I mm-hmm. remember being in the city with friends, a straight couple, mm-hmm. uh, and we all got together to watch, have dinner and see it that night because it was a big, big thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's impossible to convey to to kids today, and by kids, I mean people in their 30s, but it's impossible to convey to folks who weren't, um, you know, politically cognizant or, you know, just like, aware of being queer at the time what a big deal that was i mean that was like it was it was a moment where like the the streets were empty <laughs> like the whole country was watching 42 million people saw either watch that broadcast or saw some component of the broadcast somewhere else 42 i mean that's that's bonkers um and then the the conversation that happened the next day like somebody somebody worked on the show and i can't remember who it was it might have been the script person so the next day, she was walking down the street. She, t- she saw two young women holding hands. And she said to herself, did everything just change overnight? And it did. It really, really did. Um, I remember where I was, too. I was in high school. I was at home alone. I don't remember where my 
parents and brother were at the time, but I was, it was, I was home alone. I was watching it. When those words came out of her mouth, when Ellen leans in and says, I'm gay, I, I was on the couch. I stood up and sat down again, stood up and said, I, like, I literally jumped out of my seat and kept, I, I didn't know whether to stand or sit. I just kept going up and down and up and down because like the adrenaline that was going through me for her coming out. Uh, Cause I was closeted more or less to most of my friends at that time. And uh, that really helped give me the push to know, to, to, you know, to reach that moment. And I think a lot of queer people um, have had this experience when you can't remember anymore, how many people know that you're queer. That moment when you're like, you know, at first you're like this person and this person, okay, there's three, now there's four. And that moment when you're like, I don't know how many people know. Uh, that that episode of Ellen helped get me over that little that little marker. Well, it served its purpose. But were you surprised in your research and everything of how her career mm-hmm. nosedived after that? Yeah, gosh, uh, and you know, it's not entirely a surprise because I think ABC really betrayed um, their you know a commitment to her. They stopped promoting the show. They put a warning message on it, just like they did with Soap twenty years earlier. Mm-hmm. But you know. Ellen, she has the most chaste kiss in the world. Uh, in season five, after she comes out, um, there's an episode where Ellen's character and another character have a kiss in a lesbian bar, and it could not be more innocent. Like, literally, these two characters, if you watch this kiss, they're sitting on bar stools so distant, they have to lean all the way in until they're almost falling over to get their mouths together. It's a brief kiss. It's sweet. It's romantic. It's actually romantic. It's not salacious at all. The, the audience doesn't go, woo. Uh, Meanwhile, you know, on the Drew Carey show, the, those characters are hooking up and, and Will, not Will and Grace, on um, uh, Darman Greg, uh, you know, the, the pilot had just aired where she jumps onto and throws her legs around. Oh, and we see them naked in bed, for heaven's sake. Heterosexuals can, can do whatever the heck they do, uh, which frankly is a mystery to me. But, uh, you know, the moment two women show the slightest sign of romance, uh, they get a warning. I mean, so as Ellen said at the time, it was degrading. And, um, yeah, so I really, I, I think Disney and ABC and Bob Iger in particular uh, bear a lot of responsibility that they've, they've never really answered to uh, for that. Well, I want to bring on a comment. Uh, this is from my friend Matt Howe, and I don't know if you know him from the Barba Archives, mm-hmm. but he says, from one Matt to another, I've been following you for years and love what you've given us content-wise. Thanks, Matt, for all you do. Love the 70s queer TV deep dives. Um, I would love to see the two of you do a show together one night. So Ooh, that's yes. my wish for both of you. Or uh- Better yet, come on this show and let's have a conversation. I'm happy to talk about Barbara at, at great length. Yes, and uh, and uh, Matt, I will bring up, he has an incredible book out as well. And I actually have it right here because uh, my ruby slippers are here, by the way. Oh, you're the one who took them. Did you I'm see the one that? who took them. I've got my own <laughs> there. But Barbara strikes in uh, the music, uh, the albums, the singles. Matt Howe, if you're still here, I'd love to have the two of you come on the show one night. And we'll have a great conversation. Uh, Matt, uh, congratulations. It's a great book. Um, I couldn't stop reading it. I can't wait for it to come out in physical form. Uh, is that today or tomorrow that that's happening? Uh, that is next week. It's May 23rd uh, it comes out. But you can get a day early if you come to my event at the Strand. Uh, well, so 
not only do I have it ordered, but I also have ordered the audio version okay. of your uh, book. So uh, I'm going to give my closing remarks and then I'm going to turn it over to you. And you've got the final word tonight. It could be about anything that we talked about that you want to expound upon, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any final message that you want to leave everyone with. Don't worry about how to end the show. As soon as you say goodbye, the final credits will roll. Um, I want to thank everyone for being here tonight and prime time. And again, Again, thank you for your patience tonight. I had a glitch here that I just couldn't, uh, for some reason, it was not finding my camera. Uh, you know, gremlins were out there somewhere. But uh, Matt, you were patient. You stayed. And uh, I really appreciate it. Um, I end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. Uh Call your favorite bookseller. Uh, if you're going to be uh, in New York uh, uh, on the 22nd uh, you, at one of my favorite bookstores, and thank God this bookstore is still there. Uh, have you been there before, by the way, Matt? No, no. The first time uh, I was trapped. I'm very excited. Uh, well, uh, I. There's a lot, it's an incredible bookstore. So you're going to have a great, great time. And if I can get there, I'm going to try to get there as well. Uh, I'd love to meet you in person. It, it's a great, great bookstore. Call your favorite bookstore and ask for, hi, honey, I'm homo. And if they don't have it, tell them they should get it on the shelf. And then you can always reach out to uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, your favorite bookseller, and uh, order two copies. Keep one for yourself and keep one for that person in your life who's made a difference. But pick up the phone and call that person and let them know that they've made a difference in your life. Not an email, not a text message, not a private inbox message, a phone call. I believe it's very important, especially nowadays, that we reach out and that we're more interconnected than ever before beyond social media. So I have a dear friend. He says, we're all in the same storm, but we're in different boat size boats. And I always say, I don't care what size boat you're on as long as you have a skipper by your side. And with that, I'm going to leave the screen, Matt, and you've got the final word. And again, thank you for being here tonight. Oh, so thank you so much for having me. And I, I'd like to echo what you said. What a beautiful sentiment um, to reach out to somebody. Uh, my recommendation for anybody uh, who wants to do a little bit of good for the world uh, and for their friends is to reach out to somebody you like and invite them over or online to watch some queer episode of a sitcom together. It is a great way to connect with a friend, to have some fun uh, together, and also to do a little good by uh, you know, spreading the word of uh, you know queer characters and the stories of our lives. So uh, that's that's my that's my advice. If you need some inspiration, if you need to know uh, some recommendations for best uh, queer episodes of sitcoms to watch, pick up my book. I've got plenty in there. Uh, or just you know, reach out to me uh, uh, on social media, wherever you like. But yeah, so watch watch some funny gay television with a friend. That's uh, that's my recommendation to the world. All right, thank you again so much uh, for watching. Thanks to Richard for having me. Uh, I'll see everybody later. <laughs>